are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hey everybody, David Guzik here, and so pleased that you could join me here on a Thursday afternoon. We are here together on my YouTube channel where I post videos and uh, come here once a week to do a question and answer time on a Thursday afternoon, at least California time. And again, I'm pleased that you could join me if today you are able to join me in person. What we want to do today is we do what we normally do is we start out with a lead question from our uh, email. Uh, This one came in several weeks ago in email, several months ago, actually an email last summer. Uh, or we respond to a question that comes in from a comment on a YouTube uh, video or whatever it would be. And so after our lead question, then we take questions from the side chat. And I need to always give a disclaimer. I don't claim for a moment to have the answer to every Bible question. Sometimes my answer for you will be, I don't know, or I can't tell, but we'll do the very best we can along the way and get some questions going here. So what I want to deal with first is a question that came in from a woman named Joanne last year. And again, sometimes I apologize and I'm not able to get to questions as soon as I would like, or sometimes not at all, but... You can imagine from the number of questions that come in, I'm just not able to get to all of them, but we like to look through and select ones that we think will be of interest to a broader audience as well. So Joanne asked this question. She says, greetings, listening to commentary on Jeremiah 52 and have a question about the material world will pass away. Then how can pain be felt? Uh, thank you and blessings. Well, blessings to you, Joanne. Thank you for your question. Uh, thank you for this thing that I think will be of a interest to a broader audience, not only our immediate, uh, not just to you, I should say. So, Joanne, let me answer this question. Really, what you're asking at is, uh, will physical pain be felt, be experienced by people in hell? And It's related to something that uh, you heard me say in a message on Jeremiah chapter 52, and I speak about the material world passing away. Well, I have to say, again, after thank you for your question, first, I looked over my notes from Jeremiah chapter 52, and I couldn't see just what I said about the material world passing away. Um... Now, that's just from my notes. I didn't take the time to listen to the actual message I gave, and so it may very well be that I said something spontaneously that wasn't in my teaching notes. But I certainly do know that this is the kind of thing that I could say or would say, uh, that, hey, you know, this material world will pass away, and then we have to think about what is beyond that. But this is one thing you need to understand, and I guess this is a bit of a confession on my part. When I myself or other Bible teachers say things like, the material world will pass away. Normally, when we say that, we are being somewhat imprecise. What I would really mean by that statement is, the material world we know by experience right now will one day pass away. I think that's an important distinction to make. 
because God's ultimate goal is not to wipe out everything material and have a universe of only spiritual things. That's not God's goal at all. We know from how the Bible describes eternity future, including heaven and hell, that there is some kind of material aspect to it. It may very well be that we're dealing with another dimension that we quite can't understand. It may be that what is spoken of in material terms in the age to come isn't exactly what we experience right now in material terms, but there's some connection to them. (laughs) There are leaves on trees in heaven. I don't know exactly what that means, but it speaks of something having to do with a material world. So when I or other Bible teachers speak of the material world or this material world passing away, we are speaking in shorthand, or I'll just speak for myself. I am speaking in shorthand. And what I really mean by that is the material world that we experience right now will not last forever. You see, after the second coming of Jesus, after the fulfillment of the literal kingdom of Jesus on this earth, after the final judgment, after all of that, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And the present material world, as we experience it now, will pass away. And God will establish something new. Now, that new thing and that thing that extends on into eternity, that is going to have a material dimension to it, a material aspect to it. You see, again, the way eternity is described in regard to both heaven and hell, it is described in unmistakably material terms. One place this is spoken of in regard to hell, is found in John chapter 5. So let me read to you a few verses from John chapter 5. This is what we see. John 5, starting at verse 28. Do not marvel at this. This, of course, is the words of Jesus. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing as I hear I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Again, those are the words of Jesus. And what Jesus told us here in verse 28 in particular is that the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. Now, previous to this, back in verse 25, Jesus mentioned the fact that all who have everlasting life would hear his voice and live. But now Jesus extended the concept of resurrection to all humanity, both those who have done good and those who have done evil. Again, let's just take a look at that. Uh, verse 28 here in John chapter 5, where Jesus says, 
the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. Again, that's all. That's everybody. We're talking about everybody will hear his voice. So if that's the situation, Jesus is telling us that all of something that, listen, if if we're really in touch with it, it would be very sobering to us. Verse 29, where Jesus speaks of those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Again, that's verse 29. Jesus explained that to the astonished religious leaders to explain, first of all, who he was. He was going to give the voice that would raise the dead, that he has all authority and power. But this is what he says, that eternal life or immortality in this sense is for everyone. There will be a resurrection of condemnation. All will live forever, far beyond the physical and material life that they know on this earth and in this age. There will come the day when Jesus will command all to rise, and they will rise in bodies that are suited for eternity. Those who live in heaven will need a body that is suited to heaven, and that's the resurrection body that we as believers long for. But I'll say this. Those who will endure hell need a body that is suited for hell. (laughs) Not a body to make hell pleasant or easy, but a body that will not perish in hell. Now, when we talk in this fashion, there are people who get uptight. The stress level rises. And in one sense, I understand that. But I believe Jesus spoke to this in verse 30. Did you see what Jesus said there in verse 30? Jesus said, my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Make no mistake, Jesus explained that he is qualified as a completely righteous judge. And he connected his righteousness as a judge to his submission to God the Father. Again, I can of myself do nothing, Jesus said. That's in verse 30. I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Jesus will be the judge on that last day. Okay, so Joanne, if I could, let me sort of summarize my answer here. First of all, yes, there is a literal material aspect to hell. It is true that the Bible uses symbolic language to speak of hell, but that symbolic language points to a literal reality that is more than our what we would think of now, not less. If hell is a symbol, as it's described in the Bible, or features of hell, let's put it that way, if features of hell in the Bible are symbolic, then friends, please understand this. The reality is greater than the symbol. So yes, there will be real pain and suffering in hell. Now, remember that Jesus spoke more about hell 
than anyone else in the Bible. And he did so by a great measure. Look, from time to time, I, I, I see the people on social media or on other internet platforms. The atheist who is telling people, hell is a figment of people's imaginations. You can forget about it. There is no hell. People pleading with you, please, there is no hell. Don't worry about it. Let me tell you something. I, in one sense, have no argument with those people. Who am I? Their argument is with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ taught that there was and is a hell that people should be aware of and do everything they can to avoid going there. Jesus, that that one of love, the one of sacrifice, the greatest moral and ethical teacher that this world has ever known, he taught of hell. And he did so more than any other person in the Bible by a great measure. As a matter of fact, not only did Jesus say that there is a hell, he specifically said, and we read about it in these verses, Jesus said that he has the right to judge who goes to hell. Every once in a while, I'll be discussing hell with an unbeliever or atheist or something. And, and, and those, well, who, who are you to send somebody to hell? They'll say, listen, I am nobody. I have no right. I have no power. I have no authority to send anybody. It's not in my power, but it is in the power of Jesus Christ. Now, this is something that is criticized and railed at and mocked. There are people who believe that this is, so to speak, a soft point of attack against Christianity. The thinking is something like this. Well, nobody wants to defend hell People are uncomfortable with hell. Let's kind of get the Christians at the place that they don't really want to talk about or that they're somewhat uncomfortable with. Let me tell you this. Many people who object to God's right to judge have no problem judging God themselves. If you disagree with the idea of hell, you take it up with God and you take it up with your Bible. You take it up with Jesus Christ, who in the Bible spoke more of hell than any other individual. Hell does not belong to Christians or believers or a church or institution. It belongs to God. You take up the matter with him. And so many of the objections to God, especially among atheists that I see, they actually come down to this. You know, God didn't do it the way I think he should. I, I think God should have done it different. You know, the, the, the kind of God I think that we should have, he would have done it this way. C can I just reply straightforwardly, but hopefully kindly? Who cares? Who, who cares what you or I or anyone else think God should do. The only thing that matters is the God who actually exists, not the God I wish was there because all my wishing will not create a God if there is no God, not the God that atheists desperately hope does not exist because every atheist denial of God will not remove him if there is truly a God. What matters is God as he exists and I believe with all my heart, along with millions of believers, 
many of them brilliant men and women throughout the centuries who have seen that the God who actually is, is the God who's revealed to us in the Bible. So Joanne, thank you so much for your question. And I apologize if I could on my own behalf and on the behalf of many preachers and teachers, how we often, um, if, if I could just say casually or inattentively, uh, speak in an imprecise way. Material existence, as far as we know, will never perish, but the material world that we know of and experience right now will one day be completely recreated by God, and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. We do not think that someday there will be a world or a universe that is pure spirit. No, God does not look down on the material world. He has a high regard for it. So anyway, those that I should say is the beginning of our question and answer time today. Now I'm going to take a look at what uh, our moderator, Devin, thank you, Devin, for the work you're doing on today's live stream. And uh, I'm going to take a look here at our live stream and just take a look at the questions our moderator sent to us and we'll take a look at those together. So what we're talking about here is the first question from Jose. I've heard a preacher say that if a gay or lesbian believes the gospel, that this person is saved no matter if he or she continues with this behavior for all their sins are forgiven. Is this right? Well, Jose, what you're talking about here is a question that applies to all sorts of behavior that the Bible speaks of as sin. And make no mistake about it, the Bible speaks of homosexual behavior, whether that's male homosexuals or female homosexuals. It speaks of homosexual behavior or action as being sinful. That's just what the Bible plainly teaches. We could talk about that in a, in a larger sense some other time. But if, if we just talk about in general for what the Bible says is sinful, whether it's a heterosexual sexual immorality, uh, whether it's murder, whether it's stealing, whether it's this, the Bible simply says this, that if a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ, they, they take their uh, trust off of themselves or anything else, and they put it squarely upon Jesus, that th there's a couple things involved in that. There's many things, but let me just say two things that I want to bring up right now. Number one is repentance. We have to leave behind sin and self before we can truly turn to God. You have to turn away from sin and self in order to turn to God. You have to do a 180, a switching around from instead you were facing on this side, now you're facing this side. And once you're oriented towards your sin and self, now you're oriented towards God. There needs to be repentance. Now, repentance, real repentance is a mark of faith. It's a demonstration that a person truly believes. We're not trying to say that someone earns salvation by their repentance. Nor are we trying to say that a person's repentance has to be perfect in order to be real. 
it is impossible for any human being to perfectly repent because we can't do anything perfectly. We're human beings. We sin and we fall short of the glory of God. Repentance doesn't have to be perfect in order to be real, but there is a line somewhere. It can be very hard to define, but there is a line somewhere where someone's repentance is so fleeting, is so temporary, is just in terms of image and not in terms of reality, whatever you might say, that it, it can be said that that repentance isn't real. Jose, if somebody does not really repent, if someone does not really put their faith in Jesus Christ, and if someone does not receive a new nature from God, they're not going to heaven. It is said that Charles Spurgeon said something like this. I've never been able to find this Spurgeon quote, so I want to be a little, but it's a good quote, so let's attribute it to Spurgeon. It is said that Spurgeon said something like this. The grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. Do you get what he's saying through that? There has to be some life-changing aspect to the grace we receive from God, or we haven't really received it. Now, again, we're, we want to go a little bit overboard and say the changes don't all happen at once. And they're never complete on this side of eternity. But the change in some regard must be real. So, Jose, if you are asking me, no matter what the sin is, but if you're asking me, if somebody claims to have put their faith in Jesus Christ or prayed a prayer, but there is no evidence of new life in Jesus Christ in them, can that person be confident that they are actually saved? And I would say no. I would say no. The grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. And that would be in regard to a whole variety of sins, sexual sins being among them. So the idea that you can pray a prayer or express a belief or say a formula, and you've got like this uh, fire insurance or ticket to heaven, and, and, and if there's no change of life, if there's no repentance, if there's no ongoing Christian growth, hey, don't worry about it, you're good. Jose, I, I think that that's something we need to speak against. C can you imagine the tragedy behind a person who genuinely believes themselves to be saved and they're not. That is a deep deception and a deep tragedy. All right, let me continue on here. Thank you for that question, Jose. Christana asks, I've heard it said that our moral responsibility to get vaccinated, but others say that vaccines are immoral, especially if they contain aborted fetal material. Your thoughts on the morality of vaccines? Christiana, it is a very um, difficult question to answer, and I'll explain why. I find it difficult to get trustworthy information. 
I have had people look me square in the eye, people that I would normally trust and say such and such vaccine is made with aborted fetuses. And I've heard from other people or read other things that say me, no, that same vaccination is not made with. And on how would I know? So first of all, it's very difficult to get, I believe, reliable information on this. And so um, do the best you can to get the information you can. I, I, I would not go upon a casual second or third or fourth hand opinion from somebody. If this is something that really concerns you or someone else, you, you need to do the very best research you can, number one. But then number two, when it comes to something, anything that we would do for our health, such as a vaccine, I, I would say this, that it is really up to that individual and God, because we don't have a clear command in the scriptures regarding such a thing. There are some people who claim that this vaccine uh, for the COVID-19 virus, that this vaccine is the mark of the beast that is predicted to be in the very last days described in the book of Revelation. I strongly disagree with that. I don't think that that is true at all. Now, if something were the mark of the beast, then obviously I would be saying, don't take it. But the mark of the beast, as it is described in the book of Revelation, has to do with economic transactions and every economic transaction. And it also has to do with worship of or allegiance to the individual who is the Antichrist and or his government. These are not factors in the vaccine that we see today. There are people who say, well, it's conditioning us for a future reception of the mark of the beast. That may be true. I, I mean, I think that's really something to talk about and think about. But it doesn't say that the vaccine itself is the mark of the beast. But back to this, Christana, because the Bible does not speak specifically to this, I believe that this is a matter of Christian conscience, that Christians should get as much information as they can, they should pray as much as they can, and they should uh, act in their conscience before God in the way that God would lead them to do. So I, I think, again, I, I need to do a teaching on this sometime. I think we need to come to a renewed understanding of the liberty of the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. And where the Bible does not speak specifically to something or in clear principle to something, then uh, I believe that we need to have a freedom of conscience before God to say, uh, I will do or not do this as I believe God is speaking to my own conscience about. I think this is getting somewhat um, obscured in our present day. So I hope that answers that question for you there, Kristana. Let me go into the next question from uh, Gunnel. Gunnel, my mother-in-law there in Sweden. Hey, son. Gunnel. Uh, this woman on the bookshelf is... Uh, Katharina von Bora Luther. This is the former nun whom Martin Luther married, and she was quite a woman. So when I got my set of the Martin Luther 
bobblehead. I thought, why not get his wife as well? And they can be a husband and wife pair. So that is Katie Von, von Bora. Um, Luther affectionately called his wife, again, who was quite a woman and really had an important part in his uh, ministry. And in the future of Protestantism, actually, the, the Luther household set the pattern for um, Protestantism and family relations within them from that point on. It was really something remarkable. But Katie, uh, Luther called her, my dear Katie, and uh, they had quite a relationship. It really is one of the more wonderful stories from church history to see their, um, their relationship and how much they helped each other. Katie Von Bora was a great um, help to Martin Luther. There's a story, again, some of these stories, who knows exactly if they're true, but they're great stories, nevertheless. There's a story about how once Martin Luther, as he was prone to, was in a season of great depression. Um, Martin Luther was a man who would sometimes fall into seasons of great gloominess and melancholy, depression, we would call it today. And this had been going on for some time, and uh, Luther was just very, very depressed. One day, uh, his wife comes into the room, Katie, and she's dressed from head to toe in black, as if she's in mourning, going to a funeral, just very distinctive her garments. She is wearing the garments of mourning, the kind of thing you would wear to a funeral. And uh, Luther was struck by this. It's not the way that she normally dressed. It was a big statement. He goes, Katie, this is terrible. Who died? Martin Luther asked his wife, Katie. And Katie said, God died. And Luther was horrified. He thought this was bordering on blasphemy for his wife to say this. Katie, don't speak this way. And basically, Katie said to her husband, well, the way that you're acting, you're acting as if God has died. I think you should change your conduct. And it cheered Luther up made a pretty big change in his outlook. And he said, well, I suppose God isn't dead. I shouldn't be acting as if he was. So thank you for that question there, Gunnel. Uh, that is a, a great question. And that's Katie Von Bora. All right, next question comes from Susie, asks, why are sins listed in the Old Testament like adultery, idolatry, and other serious sins were not forgiven by offering a sacrifice and why in the New Testament these sins can be forgiven? Your thoughts, please. Susie, that is a great question. And let me answer the best that I can. If I understand your question as you're asking it, the difference between atonement in the Old Testament and atonement in the New Testament is that atonement in the New Testament is made in light of the finished completed, perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Messiah, who, as predicted in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New Testament, was a sacrifice for sins, a substitutionary atonement. I know that in some circles which claim to be Christian, the idea of the substitutionary atonement is out of fashion. Brothers and sisters, do not let go of the biblical truth that Jesus Christ died as a sacrifice for sins, that he took the sin and the guilt and the shame that we deserved, and he bore it in himself, perfectly satisfying the judgment, the wrath, 
the, the, the outpouring of God's disapproval, to put it in mild terms, upon sinners, he bore it perfectly there at the cross. Now, in the New Testament, forgiveness and atonement is spoken of in fulfillment, as being fulfilled by Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, all of it was offered by animals in anticipation of the perfect sacrifice that Jesus would one day offer. This is the truth that God promised to Abraham even before the Mosaic law, telling Abraham that in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. God will provide a sacrifice. And that sacrifice would be his own son, Jesus Christ, who was given as a sacrifice for the sins of all those who would put their trust in him. So again, I think this is a very important idea for us to latch on to, for us to cling to this very simple idea that Jesus Christ provides this perfect atonement. So, the difference between atonement in the New Testament and in the Old Testament goes back to the idea that in the Old Testament, the atonement, the sacrifice made by animals was imperfect. It could never perfectly satisfy God's justice, could never perfectly satisfy God's um, wrath, if you want to use that terminology. Therefore, it's very important to see that this perfect sacrifice that Jesus made uh, does satisfy sins, and therefore a perfect forgiveness can be offered in light of that. So I I hope that... um, Uh, explains that well enough there for you. There is a difference in the atoning sacrifice that is made between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's been said in these terms that in the Old Testament, sin was covered. That's really kind of the sense of the Hebrew word as much as I understand it. The Hebrew word that's translated atonement or atoning in the Old Testament, kofar, to cover over. That sin wasn't removed, it was covered over. It's in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ that our sins are truly taken away, that they are removed from us. So I I hope that's helpful for you. Let me go on to the next question here from Jordan. It says, Hello, Pastor. There is weighty pressure, I feel, to maintain a good reputation in the eyes of those to whom I preach to. Uh, to those I preach to, what are your best tips to maintain a, to help a Christian pastor maintain a good reputation in the eyes of others? Jordan, this is a wonderful question. And we need to, as Paul told Timothy, give attention to your life and to your doctrine. We need to give attention to both things. It's not one or the other. It's both. Our life and our doctrine need to be given attention to in our life before God. So I think it's a very significant thing for us to uh, take seriously that responsibility. And all I can say is (laughs) um, keep very dependent upon the Lord and, and let your life be filled with the fruit of the Spirit. Jordan, When you think about walking properly before others, 
usually our minds run to the idea of what we should not do. Now, that's not entirely bad because part of holiness are things that we don't do. But I think in the long term, in the big picture, it is wiser for us to put our focus on what we should do, upon the fruit of the Spirit, upon the walk that God intends us to have in Jesus Christ. So please consider it that way. Uh, Look up those passages having to do with the fruit of the Spirit. Look up the passage in Philippians where it says, um, whatever you do in word or deed, uh, do all things in light of the Lord. Uh, Set your mind on these things, whatever is good, whatever is trustworthy, whatever is pure, and, and actively do the things that God calls us to do. Now, again, I want to emphasize that there is a place for saying no to ourself. It's very good. It's a very useful thing to teach yourself to hear, to teach yourself to hear, no, I, I must not do this. I should not do this. Um, But again, think of it more in terms of the positives in that regard than in terms of the negatives. Jordan, I hope that's helpful for you. And again, uh, let me continue on now to the next question coming from City Light Hamburg. Well, I'm trusting that that is uh, my good friend, Janos. So Janos, uh, give a greeting to Anya and to your family. Uh, This is a pastor of City Light Hamburg, Germany. He says this, could the bow that the Antichrist is holding be a rainbow, Revelation 6.2, and thus have symbolic significance as faking God's symbol, but also using it the way that the LGTBQ community is using it. Janos, I would say this, that that could be true in a symbolic or metaphorical sense. Obviously, when it speaks of the horsemen, in the book of Revelation, it's speaking of people who are equipped to do battle. These are horsemen in the sense of a, a mounted cavalry among an army coming. And, and, you know, they're coming to make war. They're, 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 they're soldiers. They're men of violence, so to speak, that are depicted in this picture of the four horsemen. So he's holding a bow that would actually shoot arrows. That, that's the idea. He's making war. He's not armed with a sword. He's armed with a bow and arrow. Now, the association of that with the bow that God set in the sky and the co-opting in the modern world of that rainbow symbol among the LGTBQ community It may have a symbolic connection, a metaphorical connection, but it's not the first idea that comes to us from reading that in the book of Revelation. Uh, Especially when you think this, that I won't say this is true of all of the Bible, but we also want to say that this adoption of the rainbow as being a symbol of the LGTBQ community that that adoption of that symbol is a very recent thing in history. Therefore, uh, it wouldn't have been understood that way throughout history. And and so I won't say that that determines something. I think there's some things in prophecy that really aren't understood until the very time or near to the time of its fulfillment, But, but at least it helps put it in a little bit more perspective. 
This is something, though, that I think is of ongoing concern to believers, rightfully so. Uh, the increasing acceptance and um, requirement for conformity to uh, this idea that we shouldn't take our, Bible, our morality from the Bible, we should take our morality from the culture around us. So thank you for that. Jesper uh, asks a question. Can you explain who the Spirit is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verses 16 and 17? So let me look that up. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, where we read this. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Uh, I would regard that, Jesper, and again, you know, it's always a little bit awkward as being somebody. Again, greetings to my brother Jesper there in uh, the area of Hovde in Sweden. It's great to hear from you, brother. I hope you're doing well. In any regard, it's always a little bit awkward to answer a question like that without having an immediate recall of what I may have said about such a passage in my commentary. But from my quick reading of this, Jesper, I would regard this as a question uh, that's answered by simply, it's the Holy Spirit of God. When we see here in verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit. They're making equivalence between the Lord, now for a Jew of the first century, which the Apostle Paul was, I mean, he was a Jewish Christian, but nevertheless, he had a Jewish background. That word Lord in the Greek kurios, it had a very special significance to a first century Jew. That was the word often used in their scriptures for Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. For him to say, the Lord is the Spirit, is making an equivalence between Yahweh and the Holy Spirit. And then when he goes on to say there in verse 17, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, speaking about the work of the Holy Spirit. So yes, bro, I would say that that's speaking of the Holy Spirit, and it's one of the passages that speaks to us about the deity of the Holy Spirit, that there is one God the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, in three persons, the person of the Father, the person of the Son, and the person of the Holy Spirit. So yes, I would say that it's speaking of the Holy Spirit there. So I hope that's helpful for you there. Next question comes from Lucho. Lucho says, did you hear about the case in North Carolina about the pastor calling the police on two of his congregants to escort them out? What's your opinion uh, towards that? Well, I, I have to say, I really can't give you, Lucho, an opinion of that because I don't know anything about that situation. Your mentioning here is the first that I've ever heard of it. Um, I could conceive of many situations to call the police and ask the police to escort people out of this congregation. I can also think of situations where it would be entirely right and appropriate for the pastor to call the police and ask him to escort people out of his congregation. Um, there are people who come to church gatherings who sometimes are dangerous. Maybe they're dangerous to themselves. Maybe they're dangerous to other people. 
And so for those reasons, it might be wise and good to call the police to have them escort them from the meeting. So without knowing the circumstances behind the situation you speak of, I can't really speak to it other than just to say I can envision circumstances where it would be terribly wrong or entirely justified. Let me continue on here. Aaron gives a question. Women not as pastors and head coverings. We uphold one and not the other. How do we biblically uphold those convictions? Okay, Aaron, I I would just simply answer this way. Women not as pastors is a command. And again, it's more complicated than the stating of that. It really does have to do with uh, positions of authority, and I would say teaching authority among God's people. But but I'll take it just as you stated. I just want to acknowledge that, that there is more complexity than just to say w- women can't be pastors. That's an issue that's spoken of in the scriptures, I believe. But then also you have the issue of head coverings. Here's the issue of head coverings as it is described in 1 Corinthians. The head covering was meant to... Um, demonstrate a principle in the Corinthian and the churches of the New Testament. The principle was was that uh, women in the congregation recognized the leadership of the congregation, which, biblically speaking, was male. They recognized the leadership of the congregation, the pastors, the elders, what have you, those who led in the congregation— they recognize the authority, and in those cultures, a woman's recognition of authority was demonstrated by the wearing of a head covering. What we're saying, what I'm saying, in that head coverings are not required for women today, we're not setting aside the principle. We're setting aside the way that the principle was carried out in that cultural context. Let me give you an illustration. Aaron, or really anybody else, I don't mean to pick on you, it could be anybody, ask yourself this question. Do you kiss other people at church with a holy kiss? Now, look, I understand that some cultures do this. Uh, European believers and such like this, sometimes it's just in their culture. Largely in America and in other uh, places in North America, in many, many places of the world, this is not done. (laughs) You, You wouldn't kiss another person greeting them at church. You might shake their hand. You might give them an appropriate hug. You might give them a pat on the shoulder, whatever it would be, but but you wouldn't kiss them. Okay. Does not the Bible say greet one another with a holy kiss? Did not Paul write that in the scriptures? Are we breaking the commandment of God by not kissing each other in church? I don't believe so. I believe it's just this simple, that the kiss was the expression of a warm, heartfelt greeting in that culture. It's not the kiss itself that's important. It's the principle behind it. So I go the same thing for a head covering. It's not the head covering itself that is important. It's the principle behind it. The expression of the principle may differ from time to time, place to place, culture to culture. The principle endures. Now, uh, if somebody could show a way to respect the principle 
of qualified male leadership in the church. By the way, I want to stress that word qualified. Nobody should be recognized as a leader or an authority in the church just because they are male. The idea that every woman in the church uh, should submit to every man in the church is unbiblical, and I think it's very harmful. No, what the Bible says is that qualified men should be recognized as leader in a congregation. I don't know, if I can't think of a way to carry out that principle in, in ways that would honor it, uh, that would still say, yes, women can be pastors and elders in a church. So again, I, I hope, Aaron, you get the idea and the distinction I'm making here. Um, it's not apples and oranges, I don't think at all. I think it's a consistent carrying out of the principle in regard to both of those things. And, and the head covering, we should, and I would say must, carry out the principle behind the head covering to this day, while recognizing that the way the principle was expressed in that culture may be different than in our culture, just as in most churches, at least churches I visit, we're not greeting each other with a holy kiss. We're doing it with a holy handshake or a holy hug or whatever it would be. Okay, Aaron, I hope that answers that question for you, and thank you for asking it. Alfredo asked the question, um, why did Martin Luther want to remove New Testament books such as Hebrews, James, Jude, and Revelation? And why was the Apocrypha removed from the Bible? Well, Alfredo, let me answer that question. I believe that Luther's opposition, so to speak, to certain books of the Bible, let's take the book of James. By the way, I, I am not familiar with Martin Luther's writings enough to say, oh yes, he said, take the book of Revelation out of the Bible, take the book of Hebrews out of the Bible. What Luther did say about the book of James was, he called it an epistle or a letter of straw. Now, he said that within a definite context. I don't think he was saying that as a whole, the letter of James was useless. That's what an epistle of straw would indicate. That's not what he indicated. What uh, Luther meant was that in regard to demonstrating that central doctrine of the New Testament, the justification of the believer by faith alone, in terms of that principle or that doctrine, James didn't help you at all. The book of James didn't help you. Now, I might disagree with Martin Luther on that. I believe that the book of James actually has a lot useful to say about justification by faith, but I can understand why Luther would make such an objection to it. But I think that it's overstating it to say that Luther said, take James out of the Bible. And I'll just be honest with you, Alfredo. I am not aware. If you can point me to a specific passage in the writings or the preaching of Martin Luther, where he said, get James out of our Bibles, get Revelation out of our Bibles, get Hebrews out of our Bibles. I, I don't believe that. Martin Luther was a man who loved the Bible and loved the scriptures. He, um, he poured over every page. You know, it's really remarkable. Luther was a man who had never even seen a Bible until he went to college. That's how rare the Bible was in those days. 
And what a beautiful thing. You know, I'm surrounded in a room here. I'm surrounded by Bibles and biblical literature. And that is an unbelievable gift that the church has today that we should be very, very grateful for. Now, your other question was, why was the Apocrypha removed from the Bible? Uh, Alfredo, I'm going to correct your question there. I think a better way to ask that question is, why was the Apocrypha added to the Bible? You see, the Apocrypha was added. And again, I'm doing this from memory, so please forgive me if I don't get all the details right. But I believe the first major addition of the Apocrypha to the Bible happened in the Latin Vulgate of Jerome, which was in the 5th century, was that? 4th or 5th century? Understand this. The Bible that Jesus and his apostles had, they did not have the Apocrypha. They never quote from the Apocrypha. They quote from virtually every book of the Old Testament. They do not quote from the Apocrypha. It was not in their Bible, so to speak. So the Apocrypha, and if we're talking about the Old Testament Apocrypha, the New Testament Apocrypha, so-called Apocrypha is of a different category altogether. But if we're talking about the Old Testament Apocrypha, 1st Maccabee, 2nd Maccabee, 1st Ezra, 2nd Ezra, Wisdom of Solomon, other books such as this, these books were not regarded as sacred scripture by the Jewish people themselves in Bible times. They may have been books they appreciated. They may have been honored books, but they were not accepted as holy scripture, and we should not accept them as holy scripture. They may be of interest historically, culturally, socially, but they should not be regarded as holy scripture. Okay, a golden child gives this question. Uh, Did Jesus bleed to death? What does it mean that he shed his blood? Golden child, we don't have a death certificate for Jesus. I'm not trying to make fun of your question at all. Please understand that. I mean, obviously, we don't have a death certificate. We, We don't have a medical examination of the cause of death of Jesus on the cross. However, it has been suggested, and I remember reading about this in an article of the Journal of American Medicine in the uh, in JAMA, the, the Journal of American Medicine, an article in there talking about the physical cause of death. If I can find that article, I'm going to put it in the show notes. And in that article, the author, a medical doctor, speculates, it's just speculation, but that the actual cause of death of Jesus was of a ruptured heart. If you want to get a little bit poetic, you could say it was of a broken heart. But the ruptured heart works like this. When the soldier pierced the side of Jesus... And out of Jesus's uh, side came forth um, blood and water. That was an indication medically that um, the heart of Jesus ruptured and the blood contained in his heart uh, leaked into the sack that surrounds the heart. Okay, that that's the idea that that could have been possible. So... That's the closest I've heard of an intelligent discussion of the uh, death of Jesus, the cause of death of Jesus. 
But the idea of shedding his blood, first of all, we understand this, that Jesus actually did shed his blood on the cross. He shed his blood when the blood dripped from his brow. He shed his blood when his blood dripped from his torn open back from the scourging. He shed his blood from his hands, from his feet that were pierced with nails. He shed his blood through innumerable other wounds that covered his body. So he definitely shed his blood, but that phrase, the shedding of blood, it is a biblical word picture. Word picture of what? Of death, of dying. Uh, the, the Bible will use this phraseology in the Old Testament. Uh, Whoever sheds the blood of another man, by man his blood shall be shed. And again, it, it's saying, well, what? If I cut somebody else, somebody else got to cut my... No, no, no. It's talking about death. So the shedding of blood is sort of a biblical phrase referring to uh, dying, being killed or murdered in that sense. So really, that's the significance of that phrase. Then now for the last question that we'll take today comes from Rebecca. Uh, Rebecca asks, how do we biblically pray for government leaders and Israel? Uh, Rebecca, that is a tremendous question. And let me give you some ideas. First of all, when it comes to our government leaders, pray that God would give them wisdom. Pray that God would keep them from evil. Pray that God would guide them and exhort them to do justice in whatever land you live in. And uh, pray that God would bring them to salvation. When Paul says in Timothy that we should pray for all men, for kings and leaders and this and that, the idea most immediately seems to be that we should be praying for their salvation. So, Pray for the salvation of these leaders. Pray as well that God would give them the wisdom and guide them so that Christians, and let me say this is my understanding of this. If you differ, well, then maybe we could talk about it sometime. I don't believe that Christians should desire any special favor or treatments within a country, not more than any other uh, religious group. No, I think it's appropriate for government to do things to accommodate and to allow the free expression of religion. But what we want as believers is we want freedom. We want liberty. We, we pretty much say, um, let us have liberty to do what God has called us to do, and, and God will work through us. We're not looking for special. So we don't pray that governmental leaders would give Christians or any other religious group special advantages. We pray simply that we would be able to serve the Lord the way God asks us to, that, as it says in the Bible, that the word of the Lord would have free course and be glorified. Now, how do we pray for Israel? I would suggest a couple ways. First of all, pray for the peace of Jerusalem in Israel. It's a good thing to pray for peace in Israel and in Jerusalem. I, I believe that God has given a special place for the Jewish people, for Israel in the land. I do think that it is important for Israel to live well and to treat well their Arabic 
neighbors who are not Jewish, it's very important that they do rightly towards them. Uh, that, that's beyond dispute. But, but I, I believe God has a place for the Jewish people in that land. And let me continue. Not only should we pray for the peace, but we should pray for the salvation of Israel. One of the great promises of Scripture is that all Israel shall be saved. And we look forward to that with great anticipation, that Israel would come to recognize Jesus Christ, their blessed Messiah, and that they would put their trust in who he is and what he did for them, especially what he did on the cross as a fulfillment of every Old Testament prophecy and sacrifice that was made. This is what we should pray for and ask God to speed that day when Israel, as a whole, trusts in Jesus Christ as their Messiah. So, Rebecca, I hope that that's helpful for you. I see one last request here from our moderator, Devin. Uh, Karen asks, can David please repeat the, repeat the quote from Spurgeon? Okay, Karen, here you go, just for you. Now, I, I want to take pains. I've read a lot of Spurgeon in my days. Of course, I do have the Spurgeon bobblehead here. Uh, I have read a lot of Spurgeon in my days, and I've searched for this specific Spurgeon quote and have not been able to find it. So I can't say he didn't say this. This is a saying which is attributed to Spurgeon, and we're going to put it in the show notes, but here it is. Spurgeon is reported to have said this, the grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. You get the idea there? That if grace doesn't change my life, it doesn't bring personal transformation in some sense, then I shouldn't have confidence in my salvation. You you could turn that quote around and put it in the positive. The grace that does change my life will save my soul. So I hope that's helpful for you. And I'm so pleased that you could join me today. Hey, listen, we have a newsletter, a email that we send out. We just sent one out today, and it has some thrilling news about what God is doing with the translation work. Um, we will post that on our social media, or at least a link to it um, in many different ways. Matter of fact, I'll try to put that link in the show notes as well so that you can take a look at it and just see some of the wonderful things that God is doing uh, in uh, this ministry of Enduring Word, where I have a Bible commentary on the entire Bible that's absolutely free on the internet. Uh, Some people find it helpful, and it really is intended to be a commentary for everyone, Uh, not just um, beginners, not just scholars, but a commentary for everyone. And... uh, we have a real passion to see that commentary translated into various languages and to make it available to them absolutely free. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your time joining us today. Thank you, Devin, for all your good work as a moderator today. And God bless you. And we hope to join you again next week. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.